I don't know how many baby dedications you have observed or been a part of, but that was spectacular. I mean, where was the screaming kid? Why wasn't the toddler running up and down the aisles? I think Holly and I are 0 for 2 on our uh, <laughs> baby dedications. If you know my children, you know exactly what I mean. My name's Hugh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to say Happy Mother's Day to you ladies. You are jewels uh, for loving us and caring for us and putting up with us. A couple weeks ago, I saw where a company posted this video online. They had created a fake job. They put the posting uh, job sites and in newspapers, and it was for director of operations, and it was tagged the world's toughest job. So this video is... Uh, web conference interviews between the employer and five or six uh, applicants. And the requirements for the job get real funny real fast. The guy says, uh, mobility is a real issue. You must be able to work standing up most or all the time, constantly on your feet, constantly bending over, constantly exerting yourselves at a high level of stamina. The hours, it's really pretty heavy, 135 hours, two unlimited hours a week. That one uh, went over really well. No breaks available. And then someone says, well, surely you can, you can have lunch, right? And he, oh, well, you can only have lunch when the associate is done with their lunch. Uh, You must have excellent skills in negotiation and interpersonal relations. They're really looking for someone with a degree in medicine, finance, and the culinary arts. Uh, This associate you're going to be working with requires constant attention, sometimes to stay up with the associate all through the night. And of course, these people, what? Like, how is this even possible? And he's, oh, I'm not done. You must be able to work in a chaotic environment. There's no vacations, no holidays. In fact, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's, really your workload increases a lot. It's going to be bad. This is 365 days a year. And the whole time, people are shaking their heads. And and, and last thing, this is, this is pro bono work. It, it pays nothing at all. You know, people are getting mad. They're ready to, and, and oh, by the way, this is, this is a job held by billions of people around the world. It's, it's moms. Of course, it's, it ends really well. It's good. So we thank you, moms, for filling the world's toughest job. This morning, we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 6, verse 30. If you grab one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 841. We're going to be looking at a very familiar text. Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's a story that we hear as children and really all of our lives. Apart from the resurrection of the Lord, this is the only miracle recorded by all four gospel writers. So it's quite important. Let's read together Mark 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, 
and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have a great many things to be thankful for this morning. On this day, we get to celebrate and show honor to our mothers, to celebrate along with other mothers the the gifts that you have given us in children, acknowledging the blessing that they are. And as great as that is to celebrate and be grateful for our our mothers, we have even greater things to celebrate, to, to be grateful for the fact that we have been loved and redeemed and bought with the great, cro- the great cost, the price of Christ's life. We have not been loved in mere sentiment or emotion, but through the demonstration of Christ's death and resurrection. So we say thank you. We acknowledge that we are a loved people, though we do not deserve it. Please open our eyes to see the truth and the power of your word this morning, and may we leave changed. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want us to see three things. First point. Jesus has great authority. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Mark, and if you're a note taker, you're probably thinking right now, well, goodness, I write down every single week Jesus has authority. It's almost as if Mark is trying to make a point. Let us not miss this. We've seen Jesus with the authority to call disciples to himself, the authority to cast out demons, to heal disease. He's got the authority to forgive sins, the authority to calm storms, the authority to raise the dead. And then we begin, verse 30, our passage this morning. Again, Jesus' authority is on display. The verse says that the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He had sent them out in verse 7 of this chapter. where He says he called the twelve, he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He's given them authority, but they've not become these independent agents. They don't have autonomy in themselves. They return to their commanding, 
their sending officer. And Mark uses this word apostle for a couple of reasons. One, I think he's trying to highlight these are Jesus' sent out ones. And he's also making sure to contrast what what he says in, in verse 29, where he's talking about the disciples of John the Baptist. He's making sure we know this is a different set of men. This is the, the 12 that were appointed as apostles in Mark 3, sent out in verse 7 of chapter 6, and now they've returned. They were men with authority, but they were still under great authority. Their ministry was simply an extension of Jesus' own ministry. I read this week, the disciples, having been sent out in Jesus' name and with his authority, their preaching, healing, and exercising were in effect Jesus' preaching, healing, and exercising. It's Jesus accomplishing his work through these disciples. Now, we can infer from the text that apparently the disciples were effective in their ministry because it says the crowd was so oppressive, there were so many coming and going, they didn't even have time to eat a meal. So many people coming to be healed. So many people coming to see these healings take place. Matthew, in his depiction of this story, gives us a bit more information. It says that the disciples from John the Baptist come to Jesus and they tell him that his friend was just killed. And it says that Jesus was saddened. He was grieved. This is great news that that Jesus is not this distant, unfeeling robot. He was saddened. And he says to these these disciples, "Let's, let's retreat. Let's get some rest. Let's grieve together. So he says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, there's a couple of points here, and I think it fits really perfectly with what Heather was sharing this morning. Gospel ministry is hard. It's exhausting. The praying and pleading for people to repent will wear you out. And the disciples are just spent. They've got no gas left. Beyond that, I'm sure that they were quite rattled by hearing of John's death. This was a great man, and the the ending is... Is bad. It's bad. Tradition tells us that, that each of these apostles will ultimately meet their death because of their following Christ and their proclamation of him. There's a, there's a connection between death and discipleship, mission and martyrdom. And here the disciples are, are getting the first taste of it. So an application for you guys is pray for those that are on the front lines. Encourage them. Right out of college, I had the opportunity to go overseas for a couple of years with the International Mission Board. I was sent to East Asia, and, and in the weeks and months leading up preparing, I had dozens, hundreds of people saying, I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to keep up with you, you're going to hear from me. It just doesn't happen. There is only a handful that actually do. And you will be astonished what a simple note will do how it will encourage and embolden missionaries to keep on. These disciples are weary, they're grieving, so they get in the boat to find some rest, and then something quite unfortunate happens. Let's look back in verses 32 and 33. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. 
Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. This crowd just will not quit. They see what they're doing, they anticipate where they're going, and they run to meet them. The escape plan hasn't worked. They escape from the crowd only to be greeted by the crowd. Here, just a, a simple picture. Jesus, his fame, his renown, his, he's just too great. Even when he's trying to hide, even when he's trying to escape and retreat, he cannot be hidden. Try to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You're exhausted. You're pouring yourself out. You're traveling. You're begging. You're pleading. Repent. The kingdom is here. Repent. Believe the gospel. Spiritual battles. You just want to take a breath. You just want to get away and rest. You want to be with your Savior. It's Mother's Day, so let's consider a mother with young kids. The pant leg is constantly being tugged at all day long. She hears mommy, mommy, mommy 18,000 times a day. So she sets up a little retreat for herself. She calls up a dear friend, another young mom with kids. Okay, it's set. The instant my husband gets home, I'm hitting the door. He comes in from work. She gives him the kiss on the cheek. See you in a couple hours. So she meets her friend. They get to a, a restaurant. There's quiet music playing. They're in the corner by themselves. They're relaxing. They're having adult conversation. They're not talking about diapers in the bathroom. And they're just, ah, this is, this is perfect. But then something terrible happens. 23-year-olds march in to occupy the party room that's right beside them. They've got balloons. They're carrying gift bags twice as big as they are. Half of them are literally bouncing with excitement over this party. The other half are crying for who knows why. Now, how do these moms respond? Well, quite naturally, they respond with compassion. Look how precious these kids are. I love it that they're bouncing all over the place. They're so excited. It's no problem that you knock my coffee over onto me. You're precious. Well, clearly, no one responds like that. No one responds. It's laughable. But let's look back in our text, and we'll see that not only does Jesus have great authority, he has great compassion. Second point, Jesus has great compassion. Let's see it in verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Instead of responding in frustration, instead of lashing out, why can't you people just give me some space? He's moved with compassion. This word compassion, it kind of has the ideas of being in your gut. He sees them and he's moved in his gut. Here again, this puts the doctrine of the incarnation, the coming of Jesus in bodily form, on clear display. He's not distant and unknowable and unfeeling, but he came to earth and entered into our pain and our suffering, and so he truly knows what we feel. 
And when he sees them, he's moved with compassion. That's why this idea is so prevalent in the book of Hebrews. The author says in chapter 4, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He sees the crowd, and he sees them as they are, as sheep without a shepherd. Now this imagery of sheep and shepherd, it's a consistent refrain through the Old Testament. We see it First Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 18, Ezekiel 34. David was viewed as a shepherd to Israel. So this is a clear and well-known picture in the Jewish mind. But there's a shepherd that's greater than David here. Consider what Numbers 27 tells us. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Now in this passage, we see one greater than Joshua, who possesses even more of the Spirit, who is on the scene, ready to lead Israel, to feed the flock to be the promised shepherd from Ezekiel 34. Jesus fulfills this perfectly. Jesus is moved with compassion because he sees the people as sheep. And sheep are helpless. They can't provide for themselves. If they find green grass, it's by dumb luck. They can't protect themselves. If they fall down on their backs, they can't even get back up. They need constant supervision, constant protection. They need to be fed. They need to be protected and led. It's no wonder that humanity is often referred to as a sheep. We also need leading and protecting and provision. That's why Isaiah said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we see clearly that Jesus views himself as this shepherd. Mark makes it clear at the end of the gospel in chapter 14 where Jesus said, You will all fall away. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter calls Jesus the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So Jesus sees them, he's moved with compassion, and the verse says that he began to teach them. Now it's curious, if you see someone that needs compassion, you almost think the text should say he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, so he went and gave them a hug. He went and spoke blessing over them. He went and said, I love you. No, it says he went and taught them. Interestingly enough, for the longest time, culture has said teaching is really the fundamental need for humanity. And you'll see it put on, put on display in a number of ways. Someone will say, they'll highlight health issues. Well, this third world country, they're constantly sick because they don't know how to provide, they don't know how to keep 
food uh, prepared. They don't know how to keep it. They can't uh, they don't have information about sanitary practices, all these things. So they need to be taught, and then that problem will go away. Other people will look at poverty as a great problem. They'll say, well, they need to be taught how to write a resume and conduct themselves on a job interview and work hard. If they're, if they're taught the right set of information, then they can, they can get rid of their chief problem. Other people will say, well, no, it's, it's evil political leaders. They're keeping people under their thumb. All the people need to know is there's a better way. They need to be educated. They need to be taught, and then they can be liberated. Humanity needs more education, more skill. That's our greatest need. That's what culture has said, and it will continue to say. And though our text doesn't tell us any more then Jesus taught them many things. We know from Mark 1.15 what he was teaching them. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's actively teaching them. I have authority to forgive sins. He's actively showing them that he has the authority to heal, to cast out demons, to raise the dead. He's saying, I'm the king, and even now my kingdom is coming. Even now I'm beginning to make all things new. Jesus doesn't teach the crowd to subscribe to a better set of ideas. He's telling them to submit to a better king. A kind and gracious king, a shepherd king that says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. What a contrast to the fraudulent king Last week, in last week's text, Herod used his power, he abused it. But this king, he calls to the crowd, look to me and find rest for your souls. I'll feed you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. Trust in me. I know your greatest need. And I'll be your shepherd king. Such compassion. Let's continue reading in verse 35 of our text. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give, them, give it to them to eat? Apparently, this teaching went on and on for some time. And I think what happened is the disciples started to get hungry. They're looking around at the crowd going, there's going to be trouble on our hands. If this crowd stays any longer and they get any hungrier like we are, Jesus, it's really the best thing, it's the wisest thing to send them away. Let's send them away so they can get dinner, something to eat, and really it'll give us some time to rest too. 
Jesus' answer is, no, they are not to feed themselves, but you yourselves are to feed them. We've got to remember that Christ has given these men authority to minister through him. So he com- his command here assumes that the disciples should continue to serve as an extension of his own miracle-working power. He's given these men authority to preach and announce the inbreaking of the kingdom, but the disciples, they just don't see it. They're looking around at the crowd. Verse 44 says there were 5,000 men. Matthew's account of the gospel says that it was 5,000 men, not even counting the women and children that were there. So this is a crowd, conservatively 10, 20,000, maybe even more people. You ever been to a a Greenville Drive game? Floor field seats about 5,500. Imagine a sold-out crowd multiplied two or three times over. And Jesus saying, you feed them. You do it. Lord, how are we to provide food for so many? Even if we give them a bite, a simple piece of bread, that's 200 denarii. A denarius is a day's pay for a working man. So this is, they're saying it's going to cost eight months worth of wages to feed this crowd. Now, whether they're just speaking hypothetically or that's all the money they had on hand, it doesn't really matter. What they had, their skill, their ability, their own resources was not sufficient. It was not up to the task. So let's see thirdly that Jesus has great power. He has great authority. He has great compassion. And we will see now that he has great power. Let's pick back up in verse 38. And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. He sends them out. Go out. Look, what do you have on hand? It's John's gospel that tells us that they actually got the food from a little boy. And when you read bread loaves, what you, you don't need to think the kind of bread you buy in the grocery store. This is, this is flat bread. It's basically more like a big cracker. And when he says fish, don't, don't imagine some fat-bellied lake trout. This is a little fish and likely dried, like a sardine. So these men that were given authority to preach the kingdom, to cast out demons, to heal disease, they come back with a little boy's snack. Their efforts, their best efforts, are not enough. So Jesus, after addressing spiritual needs, he begins to address physical needs, to shepherd these people. Sit down in groups, and they do so. The pairings of command and obedience, they go on and on through Mark. It's recurring. It's reminiscent of how Moses led Israel in the desert. But there's one greater than Moses here. 
Jesus looks up, says a blessing, thanks his Father for this provision. He breaks the bread. He divides the fish and gives it to the twelve, who then gives it to the crowd. Once again, it's Jesus feeding, it's Jesus ministering through the disciples. He breaks and breaks and breaks and continues to do so. It, re- it reminds us of 2 Kings 4, the story of Elisha and the widow. This woman is at the point of being sold into slavery because she can't pay her debts. All she has, her only resource, is a small jar of oil. The prophet says, go out, get as many buckets and barrels as, and vessels as you can find. Get them all and bring them to your house. And when you go, close your door, take your little jar of oil and pour it and pour it and pour it. And the text says that she filled every vessel full. She was able to sell it, pay off her debtors. But here in the wilderness, in this desolate place, they're being fed by one far greater than Elisha. This miracle and Jesus' greatness is put on display in a number of ways. First, the fact that he takes little and makes much of it. You've seen this yourselves. Consider your prayer life. How many times do you ask for massive things and you're given that? Most of the time, we exhibit little faith by asking for little things, and then God goes beyond that. He shows his kindness and goodness to us. This is why Paul says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. God takes little and makes much. Think about it in in your evangelism. No one here has perfectly shared the gospel. Without flaw, presented the plan of salvation to someone. Most of the time we uh, kind of trip over ourselves, trying to make much of Jesus, and we do so poorly, and then... God does something miraculous and uses our stammering and stuttering and he births faith in someone's heart. He takes little and makes much of it. You've seen it in your giving. You've got $20. You know a family in need. You give it to them and they are blown away. That $20 was exactly what they needed for some bill. And you're going, it's just $20. But God uses it for something far greater. We have the opportunity to do that soon as a church with our first fruits giving. We know that we're not a church of great means, but everyone can give something. And God has the opportunity to take our little and make much of it, slinging it to the ends of the world. So his greatness is heightened by how he can take little and make much of it. I think verse 42 is huge. It says, all ate and were satisfied. I read this week, Joel Marcus said, it's difficult for modern day readers who live comfortably and have never gone hungry to imagine the impact these statements may have had on some of their first hearers who may have known hunger frequently. It's not for nothing that one of the most frequent biblical images of the bliss of the age to come is a banquet in which the participants 
will be able to eat as much as they wish. They fed, they were filled, they were satisfied. And this should prompt us to look to that banquet ahead. The one where all will be fed, all will be satisfied for all of eternity. At this meal, there will be representatives from all peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, languages, all around the throne, all around our great shepherd king. This verse also highlights the freeness of the invitation, the freeness of his grace that all are allowed to eat. It's not the religious elite, it's not the morally perfect, but all those in the crowd were fed. They were all satisfied. And his provision is so abundant that there's 12 baskets of leftovers. He overwhelms and surpasses the need. So what about us today? How, what are we to do with this text? Three takeaways. Three takeaways for us today. First, Jesus still has authority to send. Jesus still has authority to send. He says it plainly in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Though the office of apostle is closed, despite what you may see on church marquees driving through town, there are no more modern-day apostles. Nonetheless, like these disciples, we too are sent. By the gospel, we're made citizens of his kingdom, and by the gospels, we begin to live for kingdom purposes. We are called to both display and declare who Christ is. This is who we are. It's our identity. 2 Corinthians 5 is monumental. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And hear this, in the same way that Jesus is ministering through these apostles, it's true for us. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteous, righteousness of God. You are ambassadors. You are sent by Christ. And this must be part of your identity as a Christ follower. Second takeaway. Jesus still has great compassion to show. He still has great compassion to show. In the same way that Jesus looked out and saw the crowd and instantly diagnosed their need, they're sheep without a shepherd. He still sees us just as we are. There's no hiding. There's no fooling him. He sees us and he has compassion. Hebrews 13 says, 
that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He knows that for many in this room, Mother's Day is a great day of joy and celebration and rejoicing. But Jesus also knows that for many, this day hurts. That we think of mothers that we've lost. We wrestle with bitterness over estrangement with mothers or unmet expectation from mothers. There's the memory and pain of miscarriages, the struggles with infertility. Know this. Jesus is a kind shepherd. He sees you just as you are, and he has compassion. In your pain, in your hurting, he has compassion. Psalm 108.3, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's learn from the crowd that Jesus does not remove his compassion when you fail to perform. Let's learn from the disciples that Jesus does not remove his compassion when you're weary, when you don't have enough, when you're stricken with grief. He still has compassion to show. Third and last takeaway is Jesus still has great power to save and to satisfy. So many times you feel like you'll never change, you'll never get out of that rut, you'll never be able to put that sin to death. You've been caught in it for years, but rest assured, he's mighty to save. And he will conform you to his image. He will do it. Here again, Hebrews is massive for us this morning. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Another way to say that, he's perfected for all time those who are being perfected. This is a process and he will bring it to pass. This is the only hope for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, and it's the only hope for those who have never done it. And it is objectively true that Jesus will satisfy longer and better than any sin. Because we know the nature of sin is to steal, to kill, and destroy. And when we believe the promise that if I just do this thing, if I lay hold of this thing, then I'll be happy, I'll have satisfaction, I'll have peace. Well, in the end, we feel empty and lied to and stolen from. Jesus will satisfy. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And in closing, I want you to consider this morning, are you recognizing Jesus' authority in your life? Are you quickly and gladly bowing the knee before him? Are you embracing his compassion? Are you trying to hide and, and put on a mask so that you try to earn something? Are you trying to find satisfaction elsewhere? Let me invite you to the kind words of Christ, the, the great shepherd king from John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. Let's pray. Our Savior, our great Shepherd King Jesus, 
We thank you for the truth of your authority and your compassion, your greatness. You are mighty to save. We thank you that you save those that, uh, not those that have arrived at perfection or those that have earned it, but you show compassion to all. You show compassion to those that, that need it, and surely that is all of us. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us this morning, that where there is rebellion in our hearts, that we would bow the knee to your authority. And where there's hiding and where we are trying to merit something, that we would quickly embrace your compassion and that we would taste again your goodness. Pray that you would come and satisfy us in our very souls this morning, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.